Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbing Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we've got another lovely guest with us. We have with us Dr. Susan Thomas, who is the director of Google Health in the UK. Prior to this, she was a partner at EUI and has a geriatrician background working both here and Australia. I first heard and met Susan at the Bite Labs Fellowship and it was such an incredible story. We had to bring her onto the show. So absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. See how are you? Welcome Thank to the you show. so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I know you're doing really exciting and wonderful things at Google Health. You did a bit of consulting or you did consulting for a while. We really want to kind of hear that journey, you know, from the very beginning, from the motivations to study medicine. And if you don't mind kind of bringing us up to speed. Where, where do we start? So I, I went to medical school up in Leeds uh, many years ago. I'm really old compared with you two and uh, sort of at the other end of my career, I guess. But um I went to medical school because I was clever, I guess, and I was sci- I was doing sciences, and that's yeah. kind of like that was the path that my school sent me. You kind of either went to do natural sciences or you went to do medicine. There was just like this, these were the choices <laughs> I had. So off I went to do uh, medicine at medical school, and um, and I, I went to Leeds because I I grew up in the southeast of England. I was like this little right-on person who was kind of in London. I was up in London every weekend marching for every cause that you could imagine. And um, I had places at London Medical Schools and at Cambridge. And I was like, if I go there, I'll just stay being somebody from the southeast and I need to go and get to the gritty north. So off I went to Leeds. And it's kind of, I think in your life, you have maybe five or six crossroad moments where you look back mm. and you know, those are the decisions that shaped me. And uh, whilst my school, I think, were probably very disappointed that I turned down Cambridge um I kind of see it as a a really important moment in my life where I chose to go to Leeds because it sort of has brought me on this path to where I am now so off I went to Leeds went to medical school and um did my preclinical and then I started clinical I really really hated clinical medicine like with a passion and and I think it was probably mainly because of the way it was taught and and I don't Mm. know how training has changed, but I just remember like training by humiliation. Right? I remember my first mm. neurology teaching um, on mm. a on a ward and being asked by a professor of neurology to test somebody's reflexes, and um, there was three of us, and none none of us could do it. None of us had done it before, and he was just he just humiliated us in front of the patients, and we all all three of us, two girls and a boy, ended up crying, oh, and. Wow. Um, it was just awful. And I and I can just remember thinking, why am I doing this? Like, what? this is just horrible. What is the point of this? So I did an intercalated degree with the ambition of then leaving medicine. I thought, I've got to get a qualification. I've done three years. I can't leave with nothing. It will disappoint my parents too much. I did a, a BSc in pathology, but then had second thoughts and thought, oh, maybe it's only two years. So I carried on, did it, had better, found some, like some mentors along the way and it got better and, and qualified and started my house jobs, which I did in Leeds, and then did my SHO rotation, medical rotation, did my MRCP. And I had a couple of um, amazing mentors, a couple of geriatrician registrars who really showed me the way. And that's how I ended up starting my geriatric training. And at that point, I was convinced I was going to be in and around Leeds for the rest of my life. I thought, I have one last hurrah before I settle down. (laughs) So I am... I went off to Australia and I got a lat post um, in Sydney over the Olympics. Um, it was kind of a great time to be there because I said I went at the back end of 1999, was there for Y2K for the big fireworks and New Year, and then was there for the um, uh, Sydney Olympics. And 
extended by another year, did two years of, of a geriatric uh, registrar work, which was fabulous. But then I really wanted to stay in Australia a bit longer. And it was really difficult to do as a doctor because mm. I was basically going to have to do my equivalent of my MRCP again. And yeah. for all of your listeners who have done post-grad medical exams, uh, which I'm assuming there are many, you'll all know how horrific those <laughs> are and how they overwhelm you and the thought of having to do it again but sort of several years later kind of filled me with dread so I decided to take a career break and um, did an MBA at the Australian Graduate School of Management in Sydney and I did a semester at the Chicago uh, Graduate School of Business attached to the University of Chicago and then sort of for various reasons um, had a relationship breakup I had no money various things and I also had been in Australia by then for four years and was beginning to feel a bit dislocated from mm. home, made the decision to come back to the UK. And so I landed in into the UK. I had um, no job, split off with my partner, a 50 grand debt, and oh, I was wow. living at home with my parents. So I kind of had all of these many life events going on at once. Did a lot of climbing to kind of get my head straight. Got a job as a cleaner. I was the most qualified cleaner I think there's ever been. I was really good at cleaning. Oh, wow. um, but in the meantime, also applied to consulting jobs and um, got a job uh, that started sort of a couple of months later with a small public sector consultancy where I sort of started my career into the world of healthcare consulting. And was that having left Australia, come back to UK, was that kind of you don't want to do clinical medicine anymore? You've kind of done with it. Or were you still open to the idea? I, I think at that point, I was probably still open to the idea um, of, of potentially doing stuff back here in the UK. Although I never, I never ended up doing that. Yeah. I, I remained registered um, for for a while. But when I first did my MBA, what I do, what I did think was I was going to go and do something completely different. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to do investment banking or kind of one of the many things that people do out of the back end of an MBA. And then I realized two things. One, the dot-com bubble had burst and we were sort of coming out sort of a, sort of a mini recession at the turn of the, into the noughties. Um, and so getting a job was quite hard. Getting a mm. job in a new industry with a new sector was also really hard. So there was kind of like a, a logic to saying doing something in healthcare. Mm. But actually at that point, I was in my early thirties. I'd gone to medical school when I was 19. You know, I spent the best part of a, you know, 15 years in and around medicine. Mm. I suddenly realized actually it was really, the health the healthcare system was really close to my heart and to yeah. step away from it completely just felt. So, um, so that's why I ended up sort of going into healthcare consulting. It was that's kind it. of like the, the not the compromise option, but it was definitely the the way of keeping my hands on healthcare, but learning something new, if that makes mm. sense. Tell us a bit more about kind of the consulting career journey. And the question is, did you start to feel more fulfilled? Did you feel a bit more comfortable with the work you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis when you were kind of a geriatrician? Yes and no. Just to be, I guess, I guess really clear, I really loved geriatric medicine. And I think part of the reason I stayed in medicine longer than maybe <laughs> that I would have done was because I was doing geriatrics. And lots of okay. people went, oh, you should have just changed and done cardiothoracic surgery <laughs> and, or you should have done this or that or the other. You really don't get it, right? You know, you've done one angioplasty or maybe more than one, but, you know, like you're doing angioplasty after angioplasty. Yeah. It becomes very repetitive. One of the 
reasons that I had my sort of early midlife crisis at the sort of the turn of, you know, my 30s was I really enjoyed what I was doing, but I was doing the same thing every day. Mm. And I had 35 years left to run as a as a doctor. And I was kind of like, where am I going to go with this? But I loved the geriatric medicine side of things. And actually, you know, the conversations I would have with my patients and older people was so amazing. And, and so I think I stayed in longer because of, of doing elderly care medicine. And it's the one thing that I, for a long time, really missed wow. having done the change. And I would find myself engineering my way into conversations with random old people in order to get my fix <laughs> of uh, sort of elderly wisdom, you know, Elsie yeah. on the bus and start yeah. talking. And this little old lady would be looking at me like, who are you? Why are you talking to me? And like, please give me my fix. Um, so, so it wasn't that I didn't enjoy geriatric medicine. It was, and that wasn't the reason for leaving. It was just that I needed something else. So yes, I know because I really loved consulting. It turned out and, and mm. I was, I was good at it. So you consulting, basically you go in, you've got a problem to solve. Um, you've got a team to help you solve it. You have to work alongside the clients that you're, you know, that have commissioned you to produce, you know, solve the problem in a way that actually is going to get implemented and done. And it turned out that I, I had that sort of, I had no superpower to be able to do that. And my clients liked me. I had a, I was a doctor, so I was able to have a bit of credibility with, mm. you know, other clinicians. I understood how hospitals worked, having lived and breathed you know, shifts and rotors, etc. So I was able to understand operationally how a hospital worked and our training sort of sets us up well for, for problem solving, really. Um, mm. So so I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the variety of it. You know, I'd do something for six weeks and then I'd move on and do something else. You'd work for a hospital and then you'd work for in primary care. Mm. You might work for a local authority or for the centre, you know, NHS England. But so there was lots of, lots of variety around what I was doing. Um, and I worked for a, a small consultancy called Avail, which was part of Tribal. And actually cutting my teeth in a small place was also really good for me because all the way along I've made these career choices and being filled with sort of dread and imposter syndrome and, oh my God, I'm never going to succeed and I'm going to be found out to be a fraud. And, you know, any minute now, somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder and ask me to leave the building because I'm not oh, good wow. enough to be doing this. <laughs> um, and so at a small place was really helpful because I think if I started off at, a, I don't know, an EY or a McKinsey, that would have almost been overwhelming, whereas I was able to sort of be in a very small, almost family-type environment before I then, three or four years later, moved over to EY, um, where I took the next step. Susan, talking a little bit about consulting, right? There's a surge in what we've seen from our audience as well of doctors, medical students going into it right now, right? A, lo a lot of people have become exposed yeah. to it. So as you've said, doctors, the course medicine, it, tr it trains you to be a problem solver, right? But where are the, the gaps in skills? So for the listener who's thinking, I'm interested in uh, consulting, what should I sort of learn? What things should I go out there and expose myself to? What would you say are doctors' weaknesses when it comes to entering the world of consultancy? Yeah, that's 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 a tricky one. And um, but but there definitely are because not all doctors manage it, and quite a few mm. doctors come in and do it for maybe a year or eighteen months, and then go, "Oh, this isn't for me," and step out. Mm. I think there's a few things. One, 
I think it's um, it's really ambiguous at times and you have to learn to deal with ambiguity and, and, and be comfortable navigating that. And that might sound counterintuitive as to why doctors aren't, you have a sick patient, there's, an, there's some level of ambiguity around what's wrong with them. Yeah. But at the same time, you're sort of dealing with that patient and you can kind of navigate that and, and you're always honing into something that is a definitive answer. Whereas there's just always lots of, fluid stuff going on in consulting mm. you just have to be really comfortable navigating that yeah so i do think that's one i think there's another which is you know just quite fundamental which is in consulting or in healthcare management you have to make sometimes really difficult decisions right you're having to think about trade-offs and consequences and so on and you can't always do that in a way that makes everybody happy and certainly not the doctors happy and there's mm, quite a lot yeah. of challenge in consulting if you're consulting day-to-day in the health service say doing i don't know turnaround financial turnaround or quality turnaround where you're having to challenge what a i don't know say a consultant's um uh timetable looks like and how their pas are allocated and used and stuff and those are really difficult conversations to be had yeah. and feel really uncomfortable i think for doctors to be challenged in that way we're used to um, you know, when you're working in the medical profession, particularly as you get towards the top, you know, you're sort of the, you know, you're the bee's knees, right? You're, mm. you know, you're, look, look at me, I'm the king of the empire. And then you've got these pesky managers and, and consultants coming and sort of poking at that. So I I think there are just some things where you have to be comfortable to do challenging uh, conversations, mm. which maybe doesn't sit naturally with, with doctors and there are just some just some skills around managing ambiguity, structured thinking and writing in a way that's quite different to medicine. If you want to do it, you can pick this. Like the, the thing about doctors and, and the reason I think I enjoyed my MBA so much was what we learned over those five years and then doing MRCP or other postgrad exams is we're really good at learning something really quickly taking mm. tests in it and then moving on to the next thing, right? We've got that yeah. sort of ability to pick up new information and new knowledge. So if you want to go into something like consulting as a as a doctor, you've got you've got all the ingredients and it's just a yeah. case of sort of cooking them up the right way, I guess. Yeah. Amazing. No, definitely I can definitely see the the base characteristics of clinicians being very, very good for consulting. Tell us a bit more about the transition to EY. And how you eventually kind of worked your way out, became a partner. And I think you were there for, for quite a while before transitioning yeah. over to big tech. Yeah. So I was there for 13 years. I, I have, I, I remain very fond of EY and my time there. You know, it sort of has been sort of one of the big moments of the biggest chunk of my career, certainly the longest time I spent anywhere, yeah. um, any, anywhere else. So I moved over, somebody I was working with at Avail got a job over at, at EY and contacted me and said, have a think about this and I went and I interviewed and got a job and it was just after EY had restarted its consulting business so um back in the sort of post Enron days um when all, all the big four firms had split off their consulting businesses um because of the sort of conflict between um advising and financial management and so on and EY just re-established its consulting business. So it was relatively small. It was it sort of felt, therefore, a bit like where I was, but different enough. Like, it was definitely part of a big yeah. firm. There was a canteen downstairs and a <laughs> coffee shop, for starters. There was a 24-hour print room, you know, stuff that I couldn't have dreamt of. So it was kind of like a, a step up. 
in terms of what was available and the support. But at the same time, the because it was early days, the actual consulting team was relatively small and the mm-hmm. health team was was small within the, the broader uh, consulting team. So so it was great. And and we grew really rapidly as I sort of went through the ranks of senior manager to director and then made partner in 2012. Amazing. So I spent basically the best part of then the next decade going through the partner um, sort of growth journey. Yeah. Um, ended up running the health business, the health consulting business. And then towards the end of my time there, sort of health and life sciences across all of our service lines and sort of sat on the mm. leadership team for, for the UK and Ireland overall business. Um, and and it was great. I was very content. I, you know, my career was progressing and probably thought I was going to be there till I retired, to be honest, because oh, wow. yeah. I was growing. There was a new um, new leadership for the UK and Ireland. The old managing partner had um, sort of stepped down and there was a new managing partner. There was lots of investment happening and it kind of felt like a, a great place to be in many ways. And then out the blue, uh, sort of October 2020, I got a, a phone call from, in fact, the person who took me to EY, Joe, um, rang, stayed at EY and left a couple of years before me and rang and said, um, there's this job going uh, at Google uh, with Google Health. Um, they want somebody to run the UK business. Prattled on a bit about what the role was. And I was like, oh, that's great. Um, sent ping me over an email with the details and I'm happy to post it on LinkedIn and speak to my network and see if there's anybody who might be suitable and I'll, I'll wrap my brains and have a think. Yeah. And it's like, no, they, they want to talk to you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, um, and, and so, so that was the start of my, um, my journey to Google, um, which was, so yeah, October, 2020. I, I thought quite hard about it for a little while before I did anything because I was really happy, as I was saying, I was really happy at EY. I, I, I can remember saying to my husband, um, the minute that I have my very first interview with, some, with with Google, I basically, I'm inexorably on the road out of EY. Because although this is a pull rather than a push, in order for me to go and interview and be compelling and convincing, and yes, I really want to come and work here, I'm going to have to find the things that I don't like about EY in order to uh. kind of be really you know like you, you know like when you're moving house and you you sign up to an estate agent and you go i'll look at or you're not moving house rather you're thinking about moving house in the future mm. maybe in a year's time i'll just sign up and have a look at what's out there the minute you do that you start noticing the cracks in your walls and the fact yeah. that this room is too small and you sort of become disloyal and I, and i kind of it was it was a bit like that right you know i mm. had to my disloyalty had to come up to the surface in order yeah. to take me through an interview process so my husband and I sort of sat on it for a little while because it was obviously a relatively big life decision for the family. Um, and then I thought, well, why not? I've got, yeah. I've got, you know, time left in me and let's see, let's see how it goes. So I, I interviewed and then got off of the job and then went into a tailspin of um, existential introspection, probably, if, that, if that's such a thing. I was like, I can't possibly do this. I, there's no way I can possibly go Google. Like, I, I don't have the skills or the capability. I'm old. I, 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 I don't code. 
I'm I've never set up a business, a, you know, a startup. Like, how on earth can I possibly give them anything? Um, mm. And what if it all goes wrong? Oh my god! And like just spinning. And um, I think I probably talked about this um, at the Bite Labs event that where, where we met. But um, I talked to a, a wise old friend of mine who'd previously been a partner with me at EY and who I sort of used as my sounding board during the process. I was like, this feels really high risk. Um, and he said, it really isn't, Sue. Like, what? what's the worst that's going to happen? You go and you know you're going to be able to do the job, right? You're, you're going to be able to do at a basic minimum stuff that they want. Otherwise, they wouldn't have offered you the job. And also, you know you can do that because you're a management consultant who turns her hand to anything and can bluff her yeah. way through, right? So you're going to be able to do something. And worst that's going to happen is that you you don't like it and that you're not very happy but the first six months is going to be a bit of a whirl so you're not going to realize that properly until sort of six nine months in and then by the time you've kind of concluded that that's right you're going to be a year in and then you can go get another job right you've got a year on your cv that says google right that's mm. fine and i would have you back right they'd probably have you back after six months so there is no risk this is really low risk so stop with your panicking and go and do it and do something new. So I did. And he was oh. right. And that's probably the biggest bit of advice that I would give anybody now that decisions that we make, we all, we, we attribute too much importance to, right? You kind of, mm. yes, I talked about those cr crossroad moments. And this probably was a crossroads moment for yeah. me, you know, in terms of it's taken my career in a really different direction to where I thought I would be going. I was attributing far too much risk and importance to that decision. And actually, it was quite a straightforward decision to make. And uh, I think that's probably true of most decisions that we make along the way. And Susan, that, that is an incredible journey. We want to deep dive into a few moments there, right? So I want to talk a little bit about your time at EY, first of all, right? How does life change going from the start of management consultancy, right, to a partner? How, does the, how do the roles differ, right? And my second question is going to be the, the importance of brands on our personal CVs, right? You've got huge brands on your CV now, right? How important is that? Is it really important to have brands? And then there's the argument of, can you have zero brands and just all the skills in the world? That argument and debate. I'd love your input on that. So in terms of the first question, let me take them in turn. So, so things really do change from being a junior consultant to being a partner. Um, yep. And they change in, in, a, in a host of ways. So you and, and, and I think this is true for many careers, not just consulting, but as you progress up, you progress out of being the doer and out of the detail and owning something that's kind of small and discreet. Progress up as a consultant, say that sort of your senior consultant, when you start, you get given a task, you go away, you do it, you do it well, you come back and give it to your manager, they give you another task. And then as you start getting more experience, you start shaping the task and, and like adding a bit on and then you get given a whole work stream to do and you're given the opportunity to to shape and to build that yourself so that you know as, as you're growing your responsibilities are increasing all the time throughout that journey and then you get to the stage as a say a in consulting terms a senior manager or director or ver various different parlances according to which firm where you're suddenly sort of the one in charge of the day-to-day -day. and you've got a director and a partner above you but you're sort of managing the product and you're the main map to the mm. client and you'll have people working to you and at that stage 
that's probably one of the hardest transitions you go through, I think, in any career. And I think, as I say, it's probably true, probably true in medicine, um, as you become a more senior doctor, sort of having to trust your junior doctors, it's probably true mm. in management and within the health service or, you know, any other career, but you suddenly have to go from knowing all the detail and being able to talk about it to going, I trust these people that they're mm, going yeah. to come to me with the bits I need to know. And I will distill that. So they'll come to me. Each of my five people working for me will give me 10 bits of information and things I need to worry about. I will turn that into a single list of 10 things I tell my director. And then the director will turn that into a single list of five things that they tell the partner and mm. learn like that journey of letting go and learning to trust and not being in the detail is probably the hardest transition I think yeah. you go through in any career. And people in job interviews go, oh, my weakness is I, I'm too much in the detail and I want to. <laughs> I mean, they try and say that to kind of go, it's not really a weakness. It's actually a strength. It's a real weakness. If you don't know how to delegate and you don't know how to trust your team, then you're failing at your job. So, so I think that's a big part of the change. And then kind of moving on to become a partner. I think the big difference there is it's suddenly, you know, you're the one that's making the decisions you're, you're you're sitting at the top and yeah you might have a a quality partner or a boss who you can go to for advice but in terms of the person who's signed their name on the contract it's you that's done that and or you're in a pitch for some work and you get asked a difficult question you can't kind of turn and go oh i'm going to pass this one to my partner like when yeah. you're a director because suddenly you're like oh that's me and i've got to ask it. so <laughs> sort of this increased level of responsibility and and ownership which comes as you grow in confidence, you know, like it, it, it sort of becomes natural as, as you grow in your career. But I think the other bit that really changes is when you become a partner, you suddenly realize that you are responsible for the people that are working for you. You know, if you don't bring the work in, they don't have work to do. And so you're sort of responsible for their, their bread and rations in a way. Right. Mm. And, and you, you'll win a piece of work. And like when you're a junior person in consulting you win a piece of work and you'll go out and celebrate for like three weeks because it's amazing when you're a partner you celebrate for about 10 minutes and then you're like oh my god where's the next piece coming from because we've got to get you know it, it's a constant yeah. pushing yep. the rock up the hill like sisyphus um because you know you're you're only as good as the last piece of work and there's always another another target to be met um and and so and 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 then the other aspect of that is in terms of brand and reputation and you know you're responsible for the output and if it's not good that's on you right so that i think what changes is you become just very genuinely the the owner of what's of the work that you're doing winning the work yeah. delivering the work looking after the people that work for you inspiring the people that work for you growing their careers all of those things fall onto you as a partner and that's an amazing job to do right i mean what a privilege i used to work mm. with some of the best consultants that there were were, were within my team. And I, I had the pleasure of growing and nurturing those people and mm. growing their careers and doing some, of, some amazing work with the health service that I look back with enormous pride on. So, so that's that question. In terms of brands, I, I'm sort of torn here on... So, so I don't think you can have all the skills and nothing on your CV because you need yep. a way of, of demonstrating you've got all the skills. You can't just go to somebody and go, I, I haven't worked for the last 10 years, but I've got all the skills to employ me. But um, uh, at, the same, at the same time, I don't think big brands 
are the be all and end all. Mm. I do think that different people flourish in different environments. So um, I, I like being in a big firm, right? It suits me really well. I like the, the feeling of being in it, the, mm. the busyness of a big office or, although the pandemic, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I, re- I, I really like the culture of big firms. And, and, and I look mm. back at my CV now and I mean, it's interesting. You, you, you very nicely complimented me on my career. Um, I, I talk to people, other people in Google and I hear their careers and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? And yet I, when I talk to people like you about it, you're like, wow, that's that's quite cool. So I think there's something about your own journey that always feels yeah. like maybe a little bit, uh, you can feel a bit complacent about. But then, yeah. you know, I do look back and I go, I've done a decade of being a doctor, a decade as a partner at EY. I'm now at Google. That's that's not bad, right? What What's yeah. But I do think, say, I don't know, going and joining a startup like Accurix or I don't know, Humor or I mean, they're scale ups mm-hmm. now. But but that those brands can be equivalently as good. And if that small, scrappy environment suits you better, then don't yeah. punish yourself by forcing yeah. yourself into a big place. But also, don't beat yourself up if you're not a startup person either, right? Like, there's a need Absolutely. for everything in this world. And a big brand and a little brand can be equally as powerful. Um, but pick your brands carefully, whether it's big or little. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that don't beat yourself up about not being a startup person or a big brand person. Because obviously you see that there's such a big hype around health tech and having your own startup. And, you know, everyone seems to be a founder first now and a clinician second. And, you know, there's so many different startups. And then speaking to some people, they're kind of, beating themselves about, I haven't got an idea, I'm not really doing any startups, I've all left behind with my peers. And these are very talented individuals. So it's always nice to hear someone kind of say, like, you don't need to be that individual, you don't need to have that entrepreneur hustle or whatever it is. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I, I've not done that. And, you know, like I said, I was like, I couldn't possibly even go and work for Google at this stage of my career, because I'm not entrepreneurial enough. And, you know, actually, that turns out not, not to be the case. I, I do think, Different people have different levels of, well, d- different skills, but also different levels of risk, right? To mm. to become a founder and do a startup, you've got to have a risk appetite that is greater than going and getting, I guess, a conventional job. And if you've got a mortgage where you're having to, I don't know, pay £1,500 a month for definite mm. every month, and you've got nursery fees to pay on top of that, then probably that's not the right time to go and do a startup. And that's yeah. perfect okay so i just think there's something about being gentle on yourself around your career and i talked about this at the the bite labs thing as well yeah that there's this sort of there are some people who sort of thrust for their careers like kind of like thrust for achievement and you know you've Mm. got to get somewhere really fast um Mm. either i've got to found a startup and go through my rounds of funding really quickly and get to massive scale really quickly or I, i talked about this as well that you know when I made partner, I was 42 and somebody made partner at the same time as me was 33 and had been in EY since leaving university at 21. And I was like, oh, my God, look at him. He's made partner already and he's going to earn so much money. And um, <laughs> and then I realized, that, um, like, look at what I'd done in my career. And, and actually, it was OK. Yeah. And yeah, I the area under the curve of my earnings was going to be less than his but I'd had a really good time and I enjoyed life mm. and I learned loads by going on this sort of 
winding path like again find the path that's right for you and if that means a two-year offshoot to go and learn something over here follow your instinct and go and do that you don't have to just you know thrust for something now be really cognizant of your own personal ambitions needs but also those sort of lines in the sound which is you know I've got two young kids and mm. you know I put all of the childcare onto my husband at the moment therefore I'm going to do this in order to make our life work rather than saying I'll do a startup or whatever it is right um so mm. I just think there's that acceptance that every career is going to look and feel different and and it's it's okay not to get somewhere really quickly to have a bit of a sense of where you're going and take the journey as it comes no absolutely I love that thank you for sharing that we need someone of your caliber and your career journey so far to say that because sometimes when you're a bit junior, you can't really say that and, and you're kind of thinking it. Kind of moving on to kind of where you are now at Google Health. Tell us a bit more about what you're doing, how you're finding the role. Because when you think of Google, health doesn't come first to mind, right? And I know mm -hmm. they're very well integrated. You think of Google search and all the wonderful things they're doing. Tell us how you found it. And I, and I remember you saying you were kind of building up this, this unit, this, this thing in the UK for Google Health. What does it entail? What is Google doing? And... More importantly, how is it being received by the, the community, by clinicians, by the NHS? Happy to, to talk about that. Um, I'll, I'll just start by saying, um, sort of finish off that last conversation. When I first moved to, to Google, um, it, it was during the pandemic. It was April 21, so just over two years ago, two and, two and a quarter years ago. And um, we were in, so I think the second lockdown had just finished when yeah. I started. Um but we were still in massive restrictions, right? You could only meet six people outside and all of that. Yeah. Um, and so I shut, I finished at EY, took my laptop back, and then three days later started at Google in my same little box room in Walthamstow, but just with a different laptop, um, <laughs> with a Chromebook. Um, and um, so I left EY very much with a whimper rather than a bang after 13 years. It's one of the things that makes me quite sad about that having left was, you know, after such a long time because of the yeah, pandemic, yeah. it was sort of just fizzled out. Yeah. Um, but then equally, I then joined this new place where I was senior and trying to, you know, like the skills you have as a, as a leader are all quite intangible. It's about making friends with people. It's one, one of, one of my only, um, I think one of my only superpowers is my ability to make friends with people and uh, <laughs> making friends over GVC as opposed to in person, it's much harder, you know, having those yeah. like little touch points or moments where you say, tell me about your kids or, you know, whatever, are much harder to do when you're sort of sitting doing a formulaic half hour introductory GVC. Um, plus I'd uh, been an out, I'm a Microsoft user all my career and suddenly had moved to the workspace. And I was like, so I was on my own you know people are like just contact us at any point with any troubles you have and <laughs> I, I remember my first week um not being able to rename a really important um document that I had to send to HMRC about becoming a PAYE earner rather than a self-employed person which I was at EY and you had to re had to download this document and rename it a very specific way with your date of birth and your name and then get it sent off and it was like you have to get this done in week one and I and I was there and I was like right click and uh, rename the document and it didn't work and I right clicked again and it didn't work and I right clicked about eight times and unsurprisingly oh it didn't work <laughs> any time and then I was like well, I can't rename a document what what have I like what what on earth am I doing why have I made this move 
Here I am. <laughs> I, I've joined a technology firm. I, I've had to change the technology I'm using. I'm sat at home in a little room. What have I done? I can just remember crying. Oh, wow. Um, and, um, you know, people have said, oh, you should have just contacted us. I was like, can you imagine me contacting you going, well, hello, I'm new. Can you tell me how to rename my document? Um, <laughs> honestly, um, anyway, I then, I then Googled it, how to rename a document on a Chromebook, and it was very straightforward. But um, I, I guess I tell you that story just to, um, sort of, like, we all, whatever age you are and however people look at your career, we all are just very human, right? Like, we oh, all... Man struggle and that first three months four months at google were extraordinarily hard i'd meet all these amazing people and i would like literally die a little bit more like this imposter syndrome got bigger and bigger and bigger but um but then and i and i can't really tell you when it changed i I, i started coming into the office which i think really helped the office opened up and there weren't many people coming in, but there was enough. So I started to get to know people in a slightly different way. Mm. But then, so so my role at Google was really unclear to begin with. I think roles at Google and big firms often are. Yeah. And probably what I thought I was coming in to do was different to what I ended up doing. I started to see ways that the skills I had were really important to Google. And they were skills, they were things that Google didn't have, right? We. Yeah. We didn't have people in the UK, certainly, who knew the NHS and knew how to talk to the NHS and bring technology to the NHS or yeah. think about care pathways and how Google products might fit into a care pathway. There was nobody doing stuff like that. And suddenly I was able to start having just little moments where I was like, oh, I've got something that is valuable here. And actually, I do have a role and I do. Yeah. Have, so you sort of start to rebalance that imposter syndrome and sort of push it down. And, you you know, it's still there. Right. And and I guess to all of your listeners, you know, again, my other sort of life lesson is we are in, in you know, people who do medicine are all bright and ambitious and so on. And you will live with this sort of anxious overachiever sort of tendency within you at always and be gentle on yourself about that right um do you feel so during your career you know there there seems where you're kind of exposed imposter syndrome moments of vulnerability do you think a byproduct all of that is something that makes you a better leader than someone just kind of rigid you know dominating thinks to know everything because i sense you're a very good leader you're very compassionate empathetic and kind of you look out for your team do you think that's what lends itself to to how you are uh so I do think that, I mean, I think there's many different flavors of leader, right? Um, and you need different sorts of people and you need different people in different moments. Um, but there aren't many jobs where you don't need to have a team that want to work for you. There aren't many, you know, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's healthcare, whether it's tech, consulting, whatever, being able to motivate and inspire people is is the way that you become successful and yeah. therefore you know for, for me that's that's really important I wear my heart on the sleeve sometimes maybe a mm. bit too much um but as a consequence I think I sort of I well I hope I inspire loyalty and uh people wanting to come into work because it's a good place to be and where 
where I'm invested in their growth and they're invested in our collective success. And it sort of is yeah. that really important sort of balance and trade. Um, mm. So, yeah. No, because I was thinking, it's the vibe I've been getting, having spoken to you for first an hour. Tell us a bit more about what you're kind of doing yeah. at Google and Health and what it kind of all means. So um, Google Health is um, basically a sort of a, a moniker that is that, that sort of encapsulate encapsulates all the work we do in health and it's about making billions of healthier lives mm. um we have i think seven or eight billion user products so gmail maps yeah. android etc so the um, search youtube and and others so you know google is a global company it's about consumers and it's about making the world's information more accessible and more more useful and health's a really important part of that, right? The pandemic mm. showed that yeah. people turn to our surfaces, hundreds of millions of people turn to our surfaces every day for information about their health. Um, you know, 75% of people turn to the internet for information about their healthcare or their symptoms before going to see a doctor. Uh, lots of people turn to YouTube for the same. Yeah. So we know that we have a role to play in that. Um, so I sort of have many different roles, but the one that's probably of most interest to this conversation is I have a, a role where I sit over all of the products areas yeah. that are doing work in health in the UK. And, and so sort of with the NHS or around the NHS, so that broader ecosystem of, of NHS, sort of social care, health tech, et cetera, because we know that it's an ecosystem. Google, doesn't mm. want, Google can't and doesn't want to play the only, you know, be the only technology player. There's many other organizations that are, you know, and, you know, startups or scale ups that we we need to bring in with us uh, mm. along the way. So I work with colleagues from Fitbit, YouTube, Search, Cloud, Research, et cetera, to try and bring the best of what we have to the health service, whether that's, say, integrating a wearable um, you know, Fitbit into a care pathway to look mm. at how you might move cardiac rehab from being an in-person program to being a virtual program owned by the individual um, we know that uh, cardiac rehab after a cardiac event um, has a uh, pre prevents further cardiac events downstream and therefore has a positive uh, health impact and health economic impact and yet only 45 percent of people who have a heart attack take up cardiac rehab mm. the vast majority of those that don't are in the lower socioeconomic groups who probably need most access to healthcare. And the reason they don't is because the bus doesn't run at the right time to go to the class from their remote village to the class in the town where it's being held. You know, there's a one once a day bus that runs. Yeah. yeah. So can we empower people to take more control of their health by giving them the tools and and the support? Because we know if we just give somebody a, a wearable, it's not going to change anything. But if you wrap a package of support yeah. around that, can we change the way people think about their health care? Think about managing hypertension, sort of um, asymptomatic hypertension. Can we change that? Can we help with um, if you're searching for information on YouTube around, I don't know, back pain or diabetes or menopause? Can we help provide authoritative, high quality yeah. information? So we've introduced products like our health shelves, which are populated only by authoritative sources, so that you know if you're going to look for information. That you're going to get it and it's going to be high quality so what i try and do is bring all of those different teams into a sort of a coherent and single voice 
to take yeah. them to our service so that we bring the best of Google rather than sort of a disjointed approach. We're a big organization and we can sometimes be a bit clunky. How do we do that in a, in a really co coherent way? Which, I mean, is kind of the best job in the world in a way, yeah. right? I mean, like I sometimes pinch myself and go, am I really um, privileged enough to be doing this? Um, and and it, it's all sorts of fun. It's enormously hard work as well, because I don't really have any authority over those people. I just have to sort of, again, mm. make friends with people and kind yeah. of bring them to the party. But but when we get it right, like the, the report we wrote and published last week with NHS Confederation around how consumers want to interact with the health system, when we get things like that right, we know it's that magic. we're yeah exactly no it's definitely and I, I can only imagine the exposure to tech and innovation you get sitting where you are and i, I know you know it's probably like in the movies right you guys are probably like 10 15 years ahead and we're only just getting stuff that's you know kind of been <laughs> tested and trialed so um yeah yeah definitely a very fortunate and very privileged place to be at the same time i feel it's very well deserved like well, thank you. you kind of yeah. that kind of hearing your journey and even though you're not actively on the shop floor per se as a clinician there's a sense of you do still genuinely care about the healthcare, about the nhs and helping people like you know sometimes I see all the people that need the most access to the tech are the people that have least access to right these people that live in rural villages with no access um so it's very noble before we we wrap up the the last question is you've had kind of career pivots crossroads what advice would you give to people kind of in that moment now where they don't know if they go to a startup they go work for big tech or go into consulting they're very unfulfilled. What helped you having done that multiple times in your career, the mindset, the thought process? Um, so I think there's two or three things. One, I, I think back to the point I made earlier, decisions on the whole are pretty low risk. Um, yeah. So if you do something now, especially if you're young, like if you're 25 or even a bit older, you've got like 40 years of working life ahead of you, probably longer by the time you get <laughs> yeah. You probably are retirement age will be 75 by then. You've got so much time ahead of you. So if you do something for two years and it doesn't work out, you've not like it's not like 10% of your working life just it's uh you know, so things are much lower risk than than you you think. The second would be um find good mentors, you know. Yeah. Find people who sort of they, they don't have to have similar paths to you, but people who will listen and can guide and will do that sort of empathetically but also independently and, and kind of have the honest conversations with you. Um, and, you know, I coach a number of people from EY days, from Google days, but also from outside. And people who coach and mentor do it because they really enjoy it. So don't be frightened of asking yeah. people to do that because Absolutely. people who, people will say yes if they can. Um, so I think that's number two. And then um, number three is, be really disciplined as well. Like whilst you, doesn't matter if you waste two years or, you know, like if something doesn't work, there are ways you can think about, like be a bit structured and a bit disciplined about how you're thinking about things. And and I have a really simple framework, which is write down the things that you're good at, you know, what your skills are, write down the things that get you out of bed in the morning that you get really excited about. Got to kind of hope that there's a bit of a overlap between those two. It's obviously easier if there is. Um, and then the third is, what are your sort of non-negotiables? So the things we talked about earlier. So if you have childcare commitments that mean yeah. you have to drop off and pick up from nursery, then consulting probably isn't going to be the career for you at the moment. <laughs> you lots of travel, right? So what are those things? Like I, I must mm. earn a minimum of X uh, per year because of my mortgage commitments. So there's kind of some personal 
red lines that you need to do. And then once you've got those worked out, you can start then evaluating your different options and going, well, which one fits best? You know, actually, if I do this job, it looks really good on paper, but it doesn't actually do anything for me in terms of the things that I'm excited about and I want to be doing. So actually, yes, it might look good on my CV, but it doesn't give me the fulfillment and therefore I'm probably not going to do as well in it. So I'll eliminate that and think about something else. So I think it's just about being structured and um, a little bit disciplined about it, but do that with the guidance of a mentor and also with the freedom of knowing that if you get it wrong, it's going to be okay because you've got loads of time to, to get it right. Um, Susan, before we go now, you've, throughout this podcast, your face has been beaming and glowing, right? What I want you to do is, th- is pick three emotions that you felt at the end of medical school and three emotions that you feel today in 2023. So at the end of medical school, relief, <laughs> um, pride and terror. Um, mm-hmm. at the thought of having to go and start on August the 1st into hospital. Now, um, uh, pride is still there, definitely. Um, uh, excitement, I mm. think, and uh, gratitude. Amazing. I feel really blessed. I'm blessed by my upbringing and my parents who have supported me all the way through. I feel blessed by my husband and my kids who kind of let me go and do this job and go off to California and do stuff. <laughs> Don't complain. I feel blessed by people like you being prepared to listen to me and Google being prepared to invest in me. Yeah. No, Thank you so much, Sue. Um, absolute pleasure having you in a show. We don't even need to wish you luck. We know you're going to smash it. A massive thank <laughs> you to our listeners as well. Thank you so much.